It's that man Prigozhin again. Everything from where he is to where he may well be going. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company, Conductor. So yes, I'm afraid we're still on Prigozhin. In terms of the way he's still naturally dominating the news cycle, he either is the gift that keeps giving or the annoying fungal infection that just won't clear up. You can take your pick. As a way of handling that, and also simply because I'm committed to do so, what I'm going to do is basically structure this particular podcast around a, a series of questions that I have been sent at different times by my esteemed oligarchs slash hetmen. Reminder, if you are at that top tier of the patron system, you are able to ask me questions at any time, and I do commit to answer them, whether it's in terms of incorporating them into the podcast or answering them directly through through the Patreon platform. Anyway, as I said, given, given that these are the questions that have been exercising my most noble and generous patrons, this is where we'll do. And so, well, let me just start with the obvious thing. Where's Prigozhin? And the honest answer is, well, certainly as of this morning, this is Sunday the 9th of July, we don't really know for sure. It does appear, though, that he is in Russia. I mean, certainly if one believes Lukashenko, which normally is not necessarily a very wise thing to do, given that the Belarusian president is, we could put it generously, a showman and certainly has at times an only nodding acquaintanceship with the truth. But nonetheless, he probably is, is, is right when he says that, that Prigozhin seems to have travelled to Belarus, but since then travelled back to Russia. He was saying, oh, it could be in Moscow, it could be in St. Petersburg. And I think the, the implication is, quite frankly, that he is doing the rounds, maintaining his connections, perhaps with the Wagner fighters, but also, I think, probably assembling assets and closing businesses down. I will come to his wider Concord Management Group sort of holding company in, in, in a moment. So the this is the interesting thing. He's in Russia. We don't know where. Indeed, the Russian state claims not to know, with, I think it's fair to say, less than entirely conviction. We even had Dmitry Peskov, the presidential spokesman, saying that the Russian state has neither the desire nor the capability to keep tracks on Prigozhin's movements. Now, I mentioned in the last podcast how catastrophically, in my opinion, the FSB really has uh, responded overall to this crisis, as so many others. But if you can honestly tell me that the FSB does not have teams monitoring Prigozhin, his communications, his travels and so forth, then they really are even more catastrophically and shockingly incompetent than I would assume myself. So, look, he is clearly out and about. The implication is therefore that as part of either the actual deal that was struck, which remember we, we've never really had fully confirmed, we're just simply relying on Peskov himself, which again, as has been demonstrated, is not always the wisest thing. 
But nonetheless, it seems to be that as part of the deal or as part of the you know, implicit political modus vivendi that has emerged, Putin is willing to give Prigozhin a certain amount of, of, of breathing room presumably with the expectation that in due course he will go to Minsk. It's worth noting, after all, that uh, there was an interview with one of the uh, Wagner field commanders, Anton Elizarov, who goes by the uh, call sign Lotus, who was saying that basically Wagner people had been given leave, because after all they had hard fighting and it's time they had a bit of time to themselves, but that after that then there's all the hard work of essentially re-establishing themselves in Belarus. So there's at least one field commander who's at least willing to claim that that is indeed the plan. So I think exactly, it, it's, it's the equivalent of Prigozhin being given a bit of leave to get his affairs in order before he heads to Minsk. But that's just uh, a guess of mine, and to be perfectly honest, it very much depends on what Prigozhin does in that time and whether or not the state actually decides to turn against him. Because, of course, Prigozhin is still, I would suggest, in his own way, dangerous. And this leads me to do the second and third questions that I really want to kind of address together. First of all, why on earth does Prigozhin appear to be popular? And secondly, what is going on with the Whigs? Now, I'm sure you know the Whig story, but if not, anyway, I will explain it in a moment. So... Prigozhin's popularity, and this is based primarily on what we saw. We, you know, we saw, for example, that when Wagner was withdrawing from Rostov-on-Don, there were substantial crowds, no, clearly were not Wagner fighters in civvies, who were there to applaud, and now people wanted to take selfies with Prigozhin and, and everything else. Now, putting aside just simply the fact that you know, there will be someone who wants to take a selfie with any vaguely famous person, Beyond that, I think it is clear that there is a degree of popularity. But, and I think this is really important, we should appreciate it's not so much for Prigozhin the person. It's not so much people are saying, gosh, an ex-con who managed to parlay a hot dog business into a multi-million pound, dollar, whatever, business empire, courtesy of the patronage of the Kremlin, and who sanctions d deserters being killed by being sledgehammered in the head, and who thinks that's a, a fun enough meme that it's worth basically making the sledgehammer your personal symbol. Wow, that sounds like the kind of guy I, I would want to support. No, it's not so much that. It is rather that, as is always the case, and I think it's particularly the case in non-authentic democracies. Let's put it that way. In other words, a country that on the one hand has the forms of, of democracy and tells people that they get to choose their national leaders, but on the other hand has that process incredibly managed and limited. People are expecting to find figures that they can follow and support, and they are looking for ones. And that tends to mean that people have, even more so than in other systems, values and attitudes imposed upon them by the popular will. In other words, it's not so much Prigozhin the man as what people decide that Prigozhin represents. So on the one hand, it's the solid Russian mujik, the man who's willing to stand up for what he thinks is right, whether it's defending his own guise or calling out the corruption, bureaucratism and incompetence at the head of the system. Now, let's be perfectly honest, 
given, I mean, on the one, one hand, Prigozhin clearly did have some kind of an emotional connection to his guys. You know, you think of those videos where he's standing in front of dead bodies screaming, where's my fucking ammunition? I mean, I don't think that was entirely confected. I think that was real, and I think it wasn't just about him feeling that his his amour propre was being challenged because Shoigu and, and the other figures within the hierarchy were not taking him seriously enough. No, I mean, I think there is a, probably that sense of that these are my boys and that I have some kind of commitment to them. But at the same time, you know, Prigozhin oversaw the consumption of thousands, maybe even tens of thousands, but I would say more likely thousands of certainly dead convict recruits who were used in these sort of so-called meat assaults in Bakhmut, basically human wave attacks in order to discomfort, flush out and locate for f subsequent artillery attacks the Ukrainian defending forces. So, you know, this is not actually someone who, who felt, a, I think, a, a really keen attachment to his men, but nonetheless that become part of the legend. Likewise, the man who's willing to stand up against the corruption and so forth, you know, that Although it's bizarre to think of a murderous millionaire as the tribune of the little man, you know, but nonetheless, that's, that's how, again, a different strand of the myth evolves. That no one else is willing to call out what's going on, but Prigozhin was willing to do that. And I think there's, there's a third cognate but slightly different element of, of the myth, which is obviously... Prigozhin becomes invested with the mantle of Wagner as war heroes. This sense that this is miserable war going on, it doesn't seem to be going well, but Wagner, one way or the other, they're the ones who are actually out there on the front line, taking territory, and generally speaking, being precisely the force that, more than anything else, actually Russians can feel proud of. Now again, there is a certain depressing irony in the thought that a collection of mercenaries and murderers should be considered to be the sort of the great champions. But again, look, you know, people people invest things with the meanings that they want. So Prigozhin represents Wagner. Wagner represents one apparently bright spark in this dark and miserable war, and therefore that's that. And I suppose, you know, actually thinking about it, there is a fourth strand as well, which is just generally that sense of rooting for the underdog. And again, you know, I mean, again, it's bizarre to think of a, a millionaire with his own mercenary army as an underdog. But anyway, compared with the Kremlin, compared with the, the oligarchs and such like he is. So rooting for the underdog as a way of venting your own dissatisfactions precisely because you all feel like underdogs. You feel that the system, for all its claims of representing you and so forth, is actually screwing you over. You feel that the system doesn't listen to you, and that in some ways the very fact of anyone who is willing to challenge that, well, good for them. So this is it. It's Prigozhin the symbol rather than Prigozhin the man. There is, after all, no kind of Prigozhin political platform. The closest there is to it, after all, is when earlier in his political struggles with the, the establishment, he was saying that, in fact, Russia ought to basically become North Korea for a few years because that's what it would take to defeat Ukraine. Now, I'm not convinced that that was a serious proposal. In some ways, it may well have been trying to give a sense of actually what it would take to defeat Ukraine as a way of saying, look, 
maybe we should be thinking twice about this war. I mean, I think there is a degree to which actually Prigozhin was articulating a view within the technocrat camp, which is precisely that this war was badly thought through, is not going to go anywhere well, and therefore, ideally, we'd want to start thinking about extricating ourselves. But for whatever reason, look, that was that's the closest thing to a kind of political programme we had, really, other than I would like Defence Minister Shoigu and Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov's heads on pikes, please. Thank you very much. So it's, it's, it's not actually as if Prigozhin represents anything except dissatisfaction, except a sense that, yes, we are happy to see anyone being able to buck the trend. And this is precisely, in my opinion, why Prigozhin is dangerous now. It is not so much Wagner, not so much his, the, the, the military forces that he may or may not still control, or at least whose loyalties he can still command. It is rather the fact that in this fraught environment, I, I've mentioned in the past, it, there's that sense of popular dissatisfaction in suspension. So in other words, you know, there, there, there is a a clear solution within which there is a lot of potential. And if something, if some little minor crystal is dropped into that solution, then all of this potential could cluster around it. In other words, it's a little bit like the what one could almost think of as the Lechfowenza syndrome, if one thinks of how quickly solidarity emerged. Now, obviously, Russia today is not Poland in the late 70s, you know, but, but still, generally, that, that sense that there is beneath the surface of this seemingly still quite placid and controlled country. A certain degree of protest potential, I think, is an important one. It's one that scares the bejesus out of the FSB and also, by extension, I think, Putin himself. Again, it's important to remember his East German experiences, in which a country that for, you know, seemed, frankly, very carefully controlled, you know, Stasi, after all, out KGB, the KGB and such like, and yet can still collapse from his point of view, frighteningly quickly, because there was this pent-up, controlled, but ready-to-be-released dissatisfaction within the population at large. And so this moves us on to the thoroughly delicious story about the kind of through-the-keyhole revelations we've had about the raids on Prigozhin's private estate, which actually took place, you know, in the time of the mutiny, after all. But they have just released, through the usual sort of outlets, all kinds of photos and videos. So we have seen the kind of tacky opulence, which is precisely what one expects of the Russian nouveau riche these days, you know, of, of the, the place itself, including, rather, I thought, rather bizarrely, actually a kind of medical room, it seemed, with sort of set up almost like a little, little intensive care unit. But along with the sight of the guns and the huge amounts, the billions of rubles of cash, we had this uh, closet full of, well, cupboard full of wigs and a series of deeply bizarre selfies of Prigozhin, apparently, wearing various uniforms and disguises and wigs and false beards, including in one case in which he really did look like he was basically playing Sasha Baron Cohen's dictator from from the film of, the, of that name to a fancy dress party. Now, some people have claimed that you can prove that these are in fact doctored pictures. Others have conversely claimed that one can prove that these are real. I have no way, no way of, of knowing one way or the other. So rather than sort of 
opining on that, let me instead say, well, why do I think that these were released? And the obvious answer is precisely to try and make Prigozhin a laughingstock, to undermine this image as the tough-talking, tough-living, solid man-of-the-people figure that is exactly what, what makes him dangerous. Let's face it, there is nothing more dangerous than ridicule in these kind of circumstances. And I think, although I think it's important not to overplay Prigozhin's importance, I mean, for example, Kirill Budanov, head of Ukrainian military intelligence, and someone who clearly regards fighting the information war as important as fighting any other aspect of the war against Russia. I mean, he recently claimed, and you know, it's striking the degree to which uh, there is a, a certain trend, I mean, I'm not saying all of them, but... Uh, a certain trend of fawning Western media interlocutor who pretty much take everything he says at face value. But anyway, he's saying that it's demonstrable that Russia is on, as he put it, the edge of civil war. And why is that? Well, he claims that uh, GUR, Ukrainian military intelligence, has uncovered that the Russian interior ministry, the MVD, has fancy new systems which allow it to basically... Um, monitor what's going on in social media discourse. And from that, demonstrated that Prigozhin had support in 17 of 46 Russian regions and Putin only in 21 of said Russian regions. And indeed that in Dagestan, which you know, it is worth noting after all has suffered disproportionately from the war, but anyway, in Dagestan, Prigozhin had 97% support. Well, look, we can certainly challenge those kind of figures, not least because... The Levada Centre, which is still, for all certain constrictions, the best and most independent of all the various opinion polling agencies still surviving in Russia, found that before the mutiny, 19% of Russians were saying that they would be willing to support Prigozhin in presidential elections if he stood in 2024. After the mutiny, that went down to 10%. And look, Levada's pretty good at working out how to you know, account for people's unwillingness to, to say potentially uh, problematic opinions. So look, you know, maybe we, we can treat those figures as slightly underballing. But nonetheless, the idea that 97% of, of Russian citizens in Dagestan, for example, think Prigozhin is the bee's knees, that just is not plausible. It may be because of weaknesses in MVD spyware, or it may be, just maybe, that a military intelligence chief currently involved in a war with another country sees himself as having good reason to try and spread potentially disruptive ideas and opinions within the information space. Just suggesting that that's a possibility. So, Prigozhin, we shouldn't overplay his importance. But on the other hand, it's clear that the Kremlin or the presidential administration regards him as potentially dangerous enough that it is worth acting to undermine his, his popular support. So, question number three. Will Wagner survive in Africa? And I think this is an interesting question because, look, it, it's perfectly clear that the Kremlin is unlikely to allow Wagner as a single coherent military unit under Prigozhin's direct command to survive within Russia slash Ukraine. But on the other hand, Wagner is part of a widespread business enterprise, which is particularly but not entirely uh, active across Africa, which brings money 
particularly actually in sort of uh, forms of, of gold and diamonds and, and similar resources, but also brings a certain degree of political power projection. Most people kind of associate Wagner rightly with Russia, and therefore various regimes which have become beholden to Wagner then sort of become more close to, to Russia. And I would suggest that the Kremlin would like to keep this. But this is part of the, the challenge that I've mentioned in the previous podcast. You know, how can you dismantle Wagner at home, but keep it thriving abroad? Do you just simply assume that it's going to be run out of Belarus, but still be heedful of Russian state interests? The key problem is this, though. Wagner was just part of the overall offer that Prigozhin's Concord Management Group presented. And we now get a sense of precisely what's happening to Concord Management. For example, the Patriot Media Group, which includes within it the social media arms, things like the Internet Research Agency, which became so infamous for messing with the American elections and, and so forth. At first, at the time of the mutiny, it was, well, not all of it, but most of its outlets were blocked. Then we had talk that Yuri Kovalchuk and his national media company, remember, you know, oligarch, very, very close to Putin, banker, meant to be Putin's banker in some ways. Um, anyway, the idea was that he would take over Patriot Media Group, and that obviously would ensure that not only does it survive, but it survives in a form that is easily controllable by the state. Prigozhin seems to have been more interested in actually shutting it down rather than letting Kovalchuk, and thus by extension the Kremlin, take it over. So, you know, we, we, we've had Patriot and various arms like, like FAN, the Federal News Agency and so forth, being shut down. Now, I don't think it's impossible that elements of it will still be salvaged and scavenged. I think particularly the social media side of things and maybe actually some of the, uh, the wider Patriot media group. I think that's still open to, to possibilities. It's not as though you know, these are people are going to be walking straight in into new jobs. But again, it's interesting that you know, Prigozhin would rather see them die than let his enemies take it over, which again, I think is, is frankly pretty much on character. So this raises the question of basically how much of the Concord Media Group is, is Prigozhin going to just either try and turn into you know, basically bankable assets that, that he can take with him, or just simply shut down rather than lose, and how much of it will survive. Because without the rest of Concord, Wagner becomes much, much less appealing and significant in Africa. I mean, in Syria, for example, there... Wagner was active, and we've already had signs that the Ministry of Defense and, you know, with by extension, the Kremlin are being very, very clear to Bashar al-Assad that it's all right. Other groups affiliated with the Ministry of Defense will step in to fill the gap from that is left by Wagner withdrawing from Syria. Well, that's fine, because that's the whole point is, in Syria, it is essentially just a military capacity that is being provided. But if you look in Africa, places like Mali, places like the Central African Republic and so forth, Wagner was successful because, as I say, it was part of an overall offer of what I've called authoritarian support services. So, yes, you know, even though it's past its heyday, Concord was still providing a certain degree of, of political technologists and perhaps most importantly, so-called astroturfing. In other words, creating fake grassroots roots movements, largely on social media, not so much for domestic importance, but particularly within the West. Usually these are 
nasty authoritarian regimes with questionable human rights records who want to try and basically build up some kind of sense in the West that actually then they're not so bad after all, or they're important, or otherwise shouldn't be, I don't know, sanctioned or, or treated badly. And this is where Concord kind of steps in. Also, precisely because there are the real estate and resource exploitation sides of Concord, which are able to convert the gold, the diamonds, or whatever, into resources, some of which they take, some of which gets ploughed back, often in the form of corruption, to national leaderships there. But that's the whole point. So fine, yes, you want some trigger pullers. You want some guys to fight rebels and protect your VIPs and the like. But Wagner is in some ways just another mercenary organisation, and there are lots of others out there, except insofar as it fits into the Concord Group. If the rest of the Concord Group basically falls apart, then Wagner's just another bunch of mercenaries. And one can question whether dealing with Wagner, which is after all under sanctions in the United States and elsewhere, is still worthwhile. In those contexts, why not turn to a likely bunch of South Africans or whoever else? So I really do have my doubts. I, this was something I, I thought would be the case, and I mentioned it previously, is that the Kremlin as a strategic thinking organization wants to keep Concord operating in Africa. However, the Putin system, as one in which, you know, enshrined at the heart of it is rapacious opportunism. The fact that when one figure or interest group becomes weak, then all the various scavengers descend to basically try and rip off whichever chunks of it that they can, prove too powerful. The system overruled the strategy. And as a result, I think we will see what relatively limited Russian continued sort of status in Africa was based around Wagner and Concord being squandered in the coming weeks and months. OK, let's take a break now. And then afterwards, I'm going to look at other actors and institutions which have been sort of swept up in the whole Prigozhin saga and then end with the obvious one. What now? Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counter-terrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So let's turn now to some of the other actors, particularly influenced by Prigozhin's mutiny. And the most obvious one, and I thank the two perspicacious patrons, my fine oligarchs who asked different formations of this, formulations, I should say, which is clearly Where's Shoigu? After all, the fate of the defence minister was ostensibly the most important element of Prigozhin's mutiny. And since that's happened, well, I mean, we did briefly see some footage of him visiting the front, which actually had been recorded before the mutiny. But essentially, you know, all we've seen of him, again, as of recording, was at a fairly early celebration to basically reward all the noble heroes who stood against the mutiny. Ha! But, you know, that was a necessary uh, 
piece of theatre. But even then, I mean, he was present, but he was in a non-speaking role. Since then, we haven't seen anything from him. We've, we've seen a couple of statements issued by the press office of the MOD, but we haven't actually had Shoigu out and about visibly in a way that, for example, Putin did with this. And this is actually one of those cases where I'm pretty sure it would have had to have been a double um, visit to Derbent in the south, where he is sort of mobbed with crowds and uh, happy to take selfies with people and such like. That is not the Putin we have come, come to know of late. But anyway, I digress. So Shoigu, scarcely visible, and indeed Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov, not visible at all. You could say it's because he's busy coordinating the resistance to the Ukrainian counter-offensive, but it still would have been entirely possible just for there to be a few photos of him in the command centre to be sort of appearing on the pages of Krasnaya Zvezda, the army newspaper or similar. So, no, I think there there is clearly some degree of significance in the fact that, that he's not been visible. Now, obviously, this means that there's constant speculation swirling about him being sacked, which would be ironic if Prigozhin, in effect, still got his way, even while, while frankly, losing. The Institute for the Study of War, which is I think, very, very good on the front lines and so forth, but I don't think quite as sure-footed sometimes in the political dimension of, of what's going on. They raise the fact that uh, a mill blogger on social media described as unprecedented, the fact that when the Vietnamese Deputy Defence Minister was visiting, he was met by Deputy Prime Minister Chenyshenka rather than Shoigu himself. It, it's not quite so unprecedented. I, I had a little look back, and yes, generally speaking, Shoigu will meet high-ranking foreign dignitaries from the Ministry of Defence. But if it's someone less than actually the full Ministry of Defence, there are times when that gets uh, shuffled off to someone else. So, you know, it, it may mean something or it may not. The fundamental point is precisely that something that has been pretty clear for a long time, which is actually the degree to which the military, having originally once regarded Shoigu in very, very positive terms, especially when he replaced the so-called furniture salesman, not that he was one, Anatoly Serdyukov, Shoigu had sky-high reputation within the military. Now, that is very much gone for all kinds of reasons, but obviously, especially since February and given the, the disastrous state of the war. In some ways, I think a little bit unfairly, Shoigu's role, after all, has been the commander-in-chief's flak jacket, that he takes all the, 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 the flak for things that goes wrong, whereas Putin can always claim the credit for anything that goes right. Not that much really falls into that category. But still, one way or the other, he, it's now clear that not only is he unable, frankly, to command the loyalty of the military, but that he might well actually be a problem for the Kremlin, in that if you are concerned about the loyalties of the military, and I think that after this mutiny, it would be a deeply stupid Kremlin that wasn't, and regardless of whatever Putin may be thinking, I think there are certainly ample figures within the presidential administration who will be paying very clear attention to this, well, then, actually, there comes a point where you actually want to turn this thing round, just simply for the purposes of regime survival as much as anything else. So, Shoigu's absence, and indeed, perhaps even more significantly, Gerasimov's, given that on the whole, the defence minister and the chief of the general staff, you know, they're regarded as a dyad. What does it represent? It may be that in some ways he's just simply in the sin bin. 
that Putin is annoyed with him for allowing this situation to, to come out, get out of hand. And look, this would be deeply unfair because actually it's Putin's job to re resolve these kind of dangerous and destabilizing intra-elite disputes. But since when has Putin felt the need to be uh, fair-minded about this, especially when he can blame subordinates for everything that goes wrong? So this may well just simply be a period in which Shoigu is just being reminded that he failed the boss in this. And it could well be that after a certain period of time, then... All will be forgotten, Shoigu will be welcomed back into the, the bony welcoming embrace of Vladimir Vladimirovich. Possible. Secondly, it could actually be that there are preparations underway to sack Shoigu and Gerasimov, because usually a new defence minister will be expected to be able to hire their own chief of the general staff, but that they're still working out the details, or that they want a, a, a bit of a grace period between that and the mutiny. Because, again, they don't want to make it too obvious. They don't want to make it look as if it was part of some kind of deal that Prigozhin was able to extort from Putin. And they may all be still working out who on earth is going to replace him. I mean, let's be honest. To become defence minister at the moment, on one level, yes, it's an exceedingly prestigious position. On the other hand, it's a real poison chalice. I mean, it's another way of basically becoming minister responsible for defeats in Ukraine. Does any ambitious youngster, I mean, I say youngster, I'm talking about some sort of 50-year-old stripling or whatever, really want that? I mean, I'm sure there are some, but they also have to be basically credible candidates. So it could just simply be that also the whole, this whole process is taking time. Though it's interesting, if that were the case, then I'd imagine by now we would have more solid leaks about who is under consideration, who has been approached to be considered, that kind of thing. And I'm really not seeing that. A lot of feverish speculation on social media, but nothing that's anything more solid than that. A third kind of intermediary option is that either Shoigu himself is considering, or the Kremlin is considering telling Shoigu that he's considering, actually him standing down but not just simply being rusticated, but actually taking some kind of honourable departure in a different direction. Because let's not forget, before the war, and you know, obviously the war changes everything, but nonetheless, before the war, there were some serious grounds to suggest that Shoigu was actually looking to move on from the defence ministry. He himself was talking about the possibilities of returning to Siberia, which <laughs> in the current context actually sounds a little bit more um, prophetic and uh, uncomfortable than might have been met at the time. But no, returning to Siberia as the presidential plenipotentiary for the Siberian Federal District and anyway, returning to his old, old role as a construction worker and a builder. Because after all, he had this vision of you know, building whole new cities in Siberia to help develop the region. So that could still be an option. Yes, of course, everyone would be aware that he'd be leaving the defence ministry because he's being perceived as a bad minister. But the point is, at least then he has a new role. Of course, he's not going to be building any cities. There's not going to be the money for that. But at least he can kind of pretend to that and talk up the opportunities in Siberia or whatever. But it's it's not as embarrassing, to put it bluntly, it, as just simply being dismissed. So this is a possibility. It's a, it's a time for Shoigu to say that, you know, it, it, I, I, I wish to step down to spend some more time with my region.
and someone else can be brought in without so much direct embarrassment. Remember, Shoigu is still close to Putin, and Putin does tend to have a very tribal loyalty to the relative handful of people he feels genuinely close to. So, you know, he, Shoigu's face is saved, a new defence minister comes in, enough period of enough time has passed that Prigozhin doesn't look like he's won and everything could be happy so that's that's a possibility i'm i'm wondering about again i may be reading way too much into this but i do feel that if you're looking for a middle way between a return to the defense ministry in glory which is not going to happen or an outright dismissal which is a humiliation then that would provide an option We'll wait and see. The interesting thing is that, look, Shoigu's troops, they didn't, on the whole, seek to resist Wagner, though, actually, if one looks at those forces which were mustering at the Oka River to try and defend Moscow if things had gone to that pitch, they were largely paratroopers. In other words, they were defence ministry forces. But nor, after all, did they join Wagner. So one could wonder, given that the National Guard are in exactly the same situation, if anything, actually worse, because let's not forget that there were those helicopters that did try to intercept Wagner and, and suffered as a result, with perhaps 13 pilots in the helicopters and a command aircraft um, being shot down, but uh, they basically ha are inconvenient and therefore they're being forgotten these days. So at least the Defence Ministry did something. The National Guard seems to have done bugger all. And yet Zolotov, General Zolotov, Putin's former bodyguard and favourite and essentially sort of, you know, pet attack dog seems to be doing fine and the question that I was asked by the by one of my oligarchs which is is the National Guard really going to get as is being claimed tanks and artillery given the fact that at the moment any bit of kit that is being produced is needed for the war effort and that given the National Guard is first and foremost a, a domestic internal security force a riot control force what on earth are they going to be doing with tanks and artillery all fair questions. So let's look a little bit at the National Guard. Oh, and by the way, just as a reminder, the National Guard is not 340,000 strong in any meaningful sense. You keep seeing that figure cropping up. It's about 180,000 strong. The rest is made up of the security guards working for FGUP Ochrana. Federal State Unitary Enterprise Akhrana, which is the private security arm of the National Guard and increasingly becoming important. And these are not people who can then be mustered to be sent to a war or fight a riot even or whatever. These are the, the sort of sometimes impressive, sometimes deeply unimpressive guys that you will find hanging out, uh, making sure that uh, people go through the mal metal detectors or driving, you know, armoured cash vans or similar. So, 180,000. And how many of them actually resisted Wagner? It seems to be the answer is, and I'm talking about in very round figures, because there is no figure more round than this, zero. There was a substantial National Guard component within Rostov-on-Don that decided to confine itself to its barracks when Wagner moved into that city. Much the same is true of Voronezh, and again, another city that, that Wagner took over. And look, it's always hard to prove negatives. But certainly, in all the pictures I have seen of the defenders mustering at the Oka River, there were, as I said, primarily paratroopers, some other what looked like ground troops, some FSB special forces. 
But actually, Roscovardia, I didn't see any. But the point is, what tends to happen life, time and again is that forces that Putin feels he needs, in other words, generally internal security forces, get a pass. You know, the FSB does not seem to be suffering in the slightest for its failures to anticipate and preempt Prigozhin's coup, sorry, mutiny. And likewise, the National Guard doesn't seem to be doing too bad. They, along with the other security forces, will be getting a 10.5% pay increase from the 1st of October. Ask any Roman emperor that the way to get the loyalty of the Praetorian Guard is to pay them more. But of course, ask those Roman emperors perhaps a month after, and they will also say, but once you start doing that, they will expect to be continued to be overpaid, but that's another matter. Beyond that, we've had the, these claims about tanks and artillery, which would basically suggest that the National Guard will be taking up more of a combat role. But, you know, have they been doing much in terms of protecting Belgorod from incursions across the border from Ukraine? The answer seems to be pitifully little, if anything. Were they willing to stop Wagner? No. Did they actually perform much of a, a sort of effective function in the Ukraine war? So, I mean, nowadays there seem to be relatively few theirs. But, you know, when, it, when they were performing a, a significant role, or meant to be performing in such a role, it turned out that they were you know, really not trained or psychologically prepared for warfare, proper full-scale warfare. It's not just about whether or not they got tanks and artillery, it's whether they are basically glorified riot police or soldiers. There's two very different attitudes and mindsets and approaches, just as there's a difference between being glorified riot police and being cops. The National Guard fit in the middle. They have a very specific role, which is precisely neither to be cop nor soldier, but instead to be stormtrooper. But in this context, they continue to seem to have Putin's favour. Indeed, beyond the widely announced but thing about the tanks. There's also the fact that GROM, which are these special forces which are uh, involved in anti-drug operations, are apparently now to be transferred from the Ministry of Internal Affairs and to the National Guard. And that's causing a lot of friction, obviously, within, within GROM and the Enverdere, but also, I think, some, some wider concerns. Back in 2016, when the National Guard was being constituted, Part of the interior ministry forces that made up were the so-called SOBR, which are you know, special rapid response forces, which were meant to be there really to support the police when they were you know, raiding gang hideouts and, and the like. Moving them across not only made it a lot more complex in terms of law enforcement operations. If the police needed support, they couldn't just simply call up Sober. They actually had to basically apply to the Roskvardia saying, please, sir, can Sober come out to play? Sometimes they even had to pay for the, the, the privilege as well. So that definitely got in the way. But also, I mean, Sober themselves did not enjoy the experience. They were, as I say, cops who suddenly found themselves operating under a military discipline that was much more about spit and polish. It was much more about sort of uh, going for standard approaches and such like, and indeed standard kit. I mean, sober operators, like special forces around the world, had been given considerable leeway as to precisely, I don't know, what shoes they wore, which particular types of gun sights they clipped onto their weapons, all that kind of stuff. But no, no, you know, once they moved into the Roscovardia, it was much more a case of having to have everything standardised, and they didn't even have the very, some of the perks that they had been promised. So that did not go well, and a lot of people actually left Sober. Um, by all accounts, 
although Sobra forces still exist within the Roskvardia, and there are some, a lot of very, very good operators within it, there are also a lot of people who, frankly, under normal circumstances, would not be considered of a high enough skill level and dedication. But someone has to fill in the gaps in the organisational table. So, I mean, this is it. Zolotov seems to continue to fail upwards. His National Guard did not do its job, did not provide proper support and protection during the, the mutiny, and in return they're getting more money, they're getting more units assigned to them, and in theory they're getting more kit. I'll be honest, I don't believe they'll actually get any tanks and artillery, except maybe one or two pieces just simply for a photo op, until the war is over, and probably not until long after that, because the... the Production capacity can be taken up by basically reconstituting the armed forces. So this is more a political act of symbolism rather than anything else. It is Putin showing that whereas Shoigu and the army are out of favour, they've been naughty boys, he still has absolute confidence in Zolotov and his skullcrackers and leg breakers. So, you know, it's an ill wind. What about then, and, and this is an interesting question that I got, which in some ways I can only kind of partially answer, is the position of other political leaders, and in particular Alexei Dumin, the governor of Tula. Well, look, at the time of the mutiny, it is fair to say that a lot of regional governors didn't really say very much or just simply waited, frankly, until the Kremlin prodded them into expressing their support for the president. And again, just a little sidelight, it's really interesting how often these statements of support were couched in terms of support for you know, either the constitutional order or the president, not Vladimir V. Putin. And I mean, I don't know whether one really should be reading too much into that or not, but it just is striking how often that comes up in the statements. Now, again, by saying the president, it's a way of affirming your support for the constitution order rather than one individual. But considering just how personalistic the system has got, you would think that more people would have frankly been trying to flatter the boss by, by mentioning him by name. I don't know, just a little sideline. Now... The Dumin situation is interesting. I mean, this is a man who clearly is a presidential favourite, is a former bodyguard. Indeed, he is being talked of as a potential future Minister of Defence, and it's probably something that he'd quite like to do himself. On the other hand, he was also relatively close to Prigozhin. Prigozhin's leaked calendar for the period 2012 to 2021 recorded, for example, 33 calls between Prigozhin and Dumin, which is, if not more than any other regional leader, at least right up there in, in the, the top category. And generally, that's one of the reasons why it has been widely assumed that Dumin played some kind of a role in the negotiations, something his press service has uh, officially denied. But again, how far one believes press services is, is, is up to personal opinion. But the point is, this is a man who has a close relationship with Putin, who has a close-ish relationship with Prigozhin, who has a martial background. He, he was for a while, for example, head of military special forces. But on the other hand, is demonstrating himself also to be a frankly pretty able regional administrator in that respect, and able to basically talk technocrat as well. So, you know, a figure like him, 
he may well benefit from from this particular conflict exactly because there could well be a vacancy at the centre that 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 he'll be well suited to actually taking. Though again, if you're having wider political ambitions, I do wonder if the defence ministry position in the context of the current war is really the best one. But again, when it comes down to it, if the Kremlin really wants him to be defence minister, he's not, in my opinion, going to be able to say no. But more broadly, what I think is happening in terms of, of, of regional leaderships is that the, the mutiny, I think, has accelerated a process that was going on before. And look, this is what follows is basically speculation on my part. There's not like nice hard evidence to, to support it. So treat it with that necessary caution. We already had a system in which the centre was becoming increasingly, from the point of view of the regional leaderships, a problem that it was making undue demands on them. It had broken the implicit social contract between the centre and the regions. And at the same time, the prospects for regional leaders to make their way to cushy federal positions at the centre were, I think, becoming a little bit more limited, especially as Putin clearly seems to be deeply unwilling for any kind of government reshuffle at a time of war. Because, understandably, it's a destabilising thing and a war which may well continue. But also Putin is holding on to his favourites, so we're having an increasingly sclerotic and gerontocratic system. Now, when this happened the last time, in other words, through Brezhnevism, what we saw is in fact regional cabals becoming more and more important. That if you don't think that Moscow is your friend, if you don't think that your future will depend on Moscow, and if actually you think Moscow is making your life that much more difficult, by giving you fewer resources and yet demanding that you do more with them. And time and again, whether it's the war or whether it's COVID, what happens is essentially Putin outsources the bad cop role to regional governors, precisely because he doesn't want to do it himself. Well, in those circumstances, what tends to happen is that the regions do begin to become a little bit more autonomous. Now, look, this is not in any way, I I really do need to stress this, a kind of precursor to the fragmentation of the Russian Federation. Instead, what it is, is basically that local interests begin to think more in local terms, and they try and band together in a way to really sort of resist Moscow. And often that just simply means lying to Moscow, claiming things are going on, when in fact they're not, trying to hold on to as many resources as possible, trying to avoid doing many of the things that Moscow wants. The Prigozhin mutiny in this respect, I think, both highlighted dysfunctions at the centre, and in particular Putin's failure to to do his job. I I really can't stress enough the degree to which resolving these intra-elite disputes that are themselves a product of the way the Putin system depends on overlapping capacities and responsibilities, constant feuding within the elite so that Putin is able to divide and rule, but the point is he nonetheless has to manage this deliberately unstable system. But he's not doing his job. He's not doing his job and at the same time his policies, primarily the war and all the various implications, are putting more of a responsibility on on the regions and and this is something that that they, they feel very sharply. And the less capable Putin and thus Moscow looks, the less reason they have to feel that they, that they need to do what, it's, what it uh, wants. So I think this is likely to happen. You know, and it, In some ways, it's, it doesn't matter whether it's a mutiny or the current 
plummeting value of the ruble or whatever it else is the sort of the, the challenge of the moment. The less people fear but also wish to pander to Moscow, and that means Putin, then the more likely they are to feel they have to do things themselves. So I, I suspect that in this respect, the mutiny is just going to ex just slightly accelerate that process. Again, let's not push it too far. And it may well be good for Dumin, but for most political leaders, it'll just be another sign that in the current circumstances, they have to dig in, they have to find their local friends, and basically do what they can just to keep things working on their level, and frankly, devil take Moscow. And finally, well, one has to go back to the question that, you know, basically implicitly everybody is asking. And it's also, after all, the question that's hardest to answer. What is Prigozhin's future? In the long term, I think it's not an especially rosy one. As I said, I don't think Putin is one to forgive and forget. He regards treason as the worst possible uh, sin of all. But at the same time, I don't think he's going to move against Prigozhin imminently. He may need him for the Wagner Concord operations in Africa, even if it's simply to arrange a kind of a, an equitable handover to a new curator of those activities, even though I think Prigozhin seems disinclined to, to let that happen. But more to the point, there has been a deal struck, and if Prigozhin falls out of a window or suffers unexplained radioactive poisoning in the next days or weeks, then it will very much weaken the Kremlin's credibility next time it has to make any kind of deal with anyone. So I suspect, again, there will be a certain uh, stay of execution, quite possibly in the, in the literal sense. But beyond that, I mean, is, is Prigozhin going to just simply disappear and decide, well, better to be a, a millionaire in Minsk than you know, actually try and challenge Putin? That's, it's really hard to know. I don't think Prigozhin has any plans to basically go after Putin, but anger... A sense of bitterness, a sense of being hard done by, firstly seems pretty much uh, you know, embedded within Prigozhin's character, and secondly can be a very dangerous and powerful motivating force. It's interesting, uh, before the mutiny, uh, along with Anna Arutunyan, I had signed a contract with, with Ibery, part of the Penguin Random House group, to write a book about Prigozhin. Not about Wagner. There are some really good books coming out about Wagner. So I'm especially excited. There's one by John Lechner, who really does know Wagner from the bottom up, um, which is coming out later next year. No, this is actually about Prigozhin. It was meant to be basically a, a biography of the man that also uses his story as a way of explaining the evolution of Russia through, well, really from, from the 80s to, to the, the present day. And then, of course, the mutiny happens, and that raises an interesting question. Is it that actually by the time the book comes out, which should be June of next year, Prigozhin will be yesterday's man? Or will it actually be that we can sort of slap on the subtitle, Prigozhin, the man who brought down Putin? I honestly don't know. I mean, and this is at once a, a scary but also exciting thing as as we, we work our way through through the book. It's very hard to predict Prigozhin's medium and short-term future. Well, if he's short-term, I think it's fairly clear. You know, I think he is in due course going to have to go to, be to Belarus. But on the other hand, he will drag it out as long as possible. He has things to do first. Long-term, as I say, I don't think it's very good. Medium-term, that's the interesting one. Does he become an active force against Putin or just simply by his existence? The symbol of Prigozhin 
become something that begins to undermine the system? Or indeed, does he just simply disappear and enjoy his money? I honestly don't know. So to the two oligarchs who asked me to address that question, I apologise. <laughs> well, I have answered your question, but just not in any kind of helpful or meaningful way, which, let's be perfectly honest, is something that one could say about so much of punditry these days. I can't help feeling that, that the great art of modern punditry is to sound plausible rather than actually necessarily always know what you're talking about. And the hardest thing is to admit to not knowing. So, on that ignorant note, I will end. Thank you, as ever, for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>